12th episode of Dialogue with Technician. I'm Tim Willard, Assistant News Editor, and today's guest is Dr. Stephen Riddles, an astrophysicist and professor at NC State University. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Reynolds. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at uh, NC State? Sure. Um, I'm a professor of physics, and my research specialty is astrophysics. I came here in 1985 uh, after um, uh, college at Harvard Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley, and then uh, a couple of postdoctoral appointments in Charlottesville, Virginia, one in the astronomy department of UVA and one at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Uh, but NC State doesn't have a separate astronomy department. I was actually hired to create a research group of faculty with common interests in astronomy. And we, there's now about eight or nine of us, depending on how you count, uh, uh, with uh, um, some postdocs and graduate students and undergraduates, maybe 20, 25 people all told. So uh, NC State is now kind of a, an astronomy center. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, research, more specifically in astrophysics? Right. Um, so I, I'm in what's called high energy astrophysics, which is a sub area. The high energies could either be involved involve the events themselves, like supernova explosions, uh, or they can involve the um, uh, kinds of uh, the part of the electromagnetic spectrum we use to observe them. So high energy radiation, like X rays and gamma rays. Usually, those are correlated. The things that are very hot or explosive are the places that you look for cosmic X-rays and gamma rays. So I do, um, in particular, I uh, study the remnants of supernova explosions. When stars explode, uh, they send a big sort of mushroom cloud of stuff out into space, which continues to expand and can be detectable with telescopes, um, at least for the ones in our own galaxy, for uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of years even. So our galaxy has got about 300 of these um, uh, fossil remains of supernovae. And since we haven't had a naked eye supernova in our galaxy since 1604, uh, this is a, the best way that we can study how stars explode. And that's a fascinating subject. Uh, one of the things that's left behind after a, the explosion of a massive star, at least often or usually, is, is a neutron star. The very core of that star uh, is compressed into an incredibly dense um, ball of pure neutrons, more or less, uh, with basically the mass of the sun squeezed into a little thing the size of Morrisville. It's the densest form of matter next to a black hole. Uh, and these things are known to exist if they have strong magnetic fields and spin, then uh, they can uh, swing a lighthouse beam of radio waves toward the Earth so that every time it spins around, we get a blip. These things are called pulsars. Uh, not only do they pulse, but they also pour out energy uh, in various exotic forms and create sort of bubbles of uh, radiation that can be studied in radio waves and x-rays. These are called pulsar wind nebulae, and I study those as well. So just last weekend, uh, November 3rd and 4th for listeners, NC State's physics department celebrated its 100th year anniversary. Can you tell us a little bit about what that celebration entailed? Sure. So... Um, NC State's physics department as a separate structure was founded 100 years ago. Its job then was basically to train engineers. Um, but so that, that was the beginning of the ability of the university to give degrees in physics. Now that ability went away for a little while, but it came back. Um, so it just seemed like a good thing to celebrate that we've been around for a century. 
Um, the Probably the most interesting historical feature of the department was in the 1950s, not long after the Second World War, um, some physics faculty uh, decided that an interesting area of research would be to build a nuclear reactor. At that time, the only nuclear reactors that existed had been built for research uh, during the war and then to uh, uh, create uh, fissile materials for bombs. NC State had the very first, the world's first, nuclear reactor built exclusively for educational purposes. Uh, and a few years after that, NC State, out of the physics department, founded the world's first department of nuclear engineering. So that was one of the major things that we celebrated for our 100th uh, anniversary. Another thing we celebrated was the return of one of our alumni, uh, Christina Cook, who was now an astronaut. So she came back and uh, uh, very graciously uh, uh, talked about the uh, the education and physics that she'd gotten in our department and uh, how that had turned into her subsequent career and now her uh, status as an astronaut. So we brought back people, uh, alumni from many years back. I saw people that I taught 30 years ago, um, and uh, it was a nice party. So for you personally, what's it like working in a physics department at a university with a long and rich history? Well, it's uh, the, the, um, the nuclear reactor, of course, is right next door. Uh, it had an interesting history of its own in that um, after the founding of the nuclear engineering department for a while that the physics research that was done in the department kind of went away from that um, and uh, uh, so the the first reactor was replaced by a second generation reactor and that was replaced by a third generation reactor and uh, since I've been here um, we started hiring some people who did fundamental neutron physics uh, and they could use the reactor to do fundamental physics again uh, so it was sort of fun that tied that back into something that was I mean the I was barely born when that first reactor was, was created, and now it is an active part of the research of some of my colleagues that I see every day. Uh, so that, that history uh, is something that I think about um, from, uh, uh, from time to time. Now, the history of astronomy, though, is, is only as, as old as, uh, as my arrival here, and I hope that subsequent faculty will be able to look on to a rather longer and more uh, and richer history than I could. Not too long ago, the Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to Rainer Weiss, Barry Barish, and Kip Thorne for, quote, decisive contributions to the LIGO detector and the observation of gravitational waves. So not all our listeners are budding physicists. So can you explain what that means and why it's important? Sure. Well, as long as we're talking about 100-year anniversaries, last year was the 100th anniversary of the publication of what many physicists think was Einstein's greatest work, which was the creation of a theory of gravity. It's uh, uh, technically called the theory of general relativity, uh, but it, it described gravitation not as a kind of magical force where the Earth reaches out and grabs onto the moon, but instead a curvature of space and time. So what the Earth does just like a bowling ball in the middle of the waterbed. I suppose some of your listeners will know what a waterbed was, uh, where it makes a depression. So if you rolled a marble uh, across the waterbed, it would curve toward the bowling ball, not because the bowling ball reached out and did anything, but because the marble moved through a curved space. Well, that's a, that's a pretty simple picture, and the mathematics is really quite horribly involved, but that's the basic idea, that gravitation comes about because matter curves space-time, and then uh, particles moving in that space-time, uh, moving curved paths. So one of the things in Einstein's 
theory that the space-time could do is it could wiggle. Uh, if you jiggled that bowling ball, then you could send ripples through the space uh, and with real effect that they would really change the distance between two nearby points. Now, they're fantastically weak. Um, we think of gravity as being pretty important because if you uh, jump out of an airplane, you'll notice it right away. But that's just because the Earth is so huge. Um, no matter how strongly you're attracted to your partner, uh, it's not gravitation. And so when Einstein derived the idea of these waves, first off, he wasn't sure if he was right. Um, and he then he published a series of papers. He finally concluded he was right, but that they were so weak they could never possibly be seen. Uh, so we now know in so, it, they are incredibly weak, and it takes fantastically violent events to ripple space-time enough that you would manage to be able to detect it. But um, in the 70s, so late 60s, one, uh, one heroic solitary uh, physicist and engineer set out to try to detect them. His idea was that a huge bar of metal, if one of these incredibly tiny wiggles in space came by, it would, would make the thing ring a little bit in ways that he could detect. Uh, well, he wasn't able to detect them, but he did work long and hard at it, long enough for other people to think, hey, you know, maybe this really could be done. Uh, and groups at Caltech and MIT uh, started up to try to build detectors using a different design. Um, it was pretty clear it was going to be a long haul and very expensive. The groups merged. Uh, the design they settled on was two different instruments built to the same specifications, each one a long arm, mile or so long, um, of, with a pipe, of, of an evacuated pipe, high vacuum pipe, laser beams shooting down these arms, bouncing off heavy masses suspended at the ends, bouncing back, recombining, bouncing back and forth, back and forth many times, ultimately with the ability to measure incredibly tiny displacements in those masses. So if something fantastically violent did occur and these ripples moved through and passed through the Earth, you and I would never notice the distances between these masses would change a tiny, tiny bit. Now, we had to have two of these pairs because you would not believe it unless, you, unless they both saw it at once. These are, effects are so small that the gravity exerted by an experimenter walking up to one of the masses is bigger than the effect you'd seen. Uh, and so you have to look for the simultaneous detection of the two detectors. Uh, so these things have been worked and, and refined and improved uh, for years and years um, and this, the new, a newly improved stage started up in fall of 2015, and within, while they were still in engineering test phase, they saw a signal. It was exactly what theorists had predicted for not the kind of event that they expected to see first. What they found, what they, they, it was perfectly the signature of what would happen if two large black holes orbiting each other coalesced into one giant black hole. Uh, and I had seen talks for years about theorists predicting exactly what the ripples should look like if this happened, what the detectors should see. Uh, and it was a real thrill to stand in the hearth down there when the press conference went on and see these two waveforms at the two detectors, one in Washington State, one in uh, Louisiana, just absolutely what the theorists predicted. Um, and so it was the confirmation that Einstein was right about the waves, but he was wrong that they couldn't be detected. We detected them. Uh, in some ways, it was the last of his major 
predictions from that theory of gravity to be verified. So it richly deserved the Nobel Prize. It's also one of the greatest engineering accomplishments ever created by people. Even more recently, and maybe more importantly for physics, the LIGO-Virgo collaboration announced that they have collected evidence of a neutron star merger. What does this mean, and why is it important for astrophysics? Okay, well, as I mentioned, people did not expect that the first signals LIGO would see, by the way, LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Observatory, they didn't expect it would, it would see black holes merging. Turns out that 30 or 40 solar mass black holes are more common than we thought. What people expected to see was two neutron stars. I told you about the neutron stars a minute ago um, being um, dense balls of, nucle of nuclei uh, of neutrons, um, incredibly dense. Uh, these things can um, be created in, in pairs orbiting each other very closely. Uh, and if they get too close, they, they actually lose energy because of the gravitational waves, whether we can detect them or not. Uh, and so they spiral together and they finally tear each other apart. Now, black holes are black. So when two black holes merge, the only thing they do is wiggle the spacetime. There's no light. There's no x-rays. There's no radio waves. There's no other way to see them. Um, but neutron stars, on the other hand, should, should produce some fireworks in addition to the ripples. Uh, and that is what happened. So I was at a meeting in Idaho last August. Um, uh, the 19th was when I got there. Um, there was a, a tremendous buzz and all sorts of rumors going around about something something impressive from the LIGO collaboration that they were keeping under wraps. Well, uh, the rumors were such that it was pretty easy to guess that they must finally have seen a neutron star, neutron star merger. Uh, but we didn't really hear the official news until a few weeks ago. Uh, and that is, in fact, what was seen. When two black holes merge, the little signal that they produce is over in two or three seconds. The, uh, the signal that they saw in August uh, took 50 seconds, so very much slower, uh, and that is the signature of lighter objects coalescing. Uh, relatively close by, the combination of the two uh, U.S. detectors, the LIGO instruments in Washington and Louisiana, and an Italian instrument called Virgo, uh, allowed them to pinpoint much more accurately where these had come from. So a whole slew all over the globe of optical telescopes had been readying just for this situation. Uh, they got an automatic um, uh, electronic notification that this had occur occurred, and in some cases completely autonomously swung to that part of the sky and started looking at well-studied galaxies. It was possible to tell from the original trigger that this event was relatively close astronomically. So you only had to look at bright galaxies, and within half an hour or something, a galaxy was found whose picture looked different than it had months ago. So this is all done by the computers. They're imaging each galaxy, one minute exposure each, comparing it to the picture in the files. And by George, here was one, number nine, uh, the ninth one they looked at, had a, a new source in it. So everybody swung to observe it. Something like 70 telescopes on Earth uh, went to watch it. Uh, it uh, brightened a little bit for the first few hours, then faded out. It was gone in a couple of weeks. It was very blue in color at first. It turned red later. Uh, it was also seen, it turns out now, by a, a satellite that detects gamma rays. Uh, it was seen after about nine days by satellites that detect X-rays. After two weeks, it was seen by radio astronomical dishes um, on Earth. Uh, so it was the fireworks from merging neutron stars uh, and has verified a bunch of predictions about how that should happen, including uh, some ideas that people had about how many of the heavier elements in nature were created. 
the one that got all the press is gold. Um, a significant fraction of all the gold in the universe is thought to uh, originate in these kinds of violent events. Um, and somebody measured it, some estimated it the amount created in masses of earth, earth masses. An earth mass of gold would be something to see, uh, but this is uh, uh, hundreds of millions of light years away, so uh, not anything you could cash in on right away. But the scientific uh, treasure is really spectacular. Now we know these can be seen. They do more or less what they're supposed to, but they're just enough different from our predictions that they give us theorists things to do and work on and keep us busy till the next one's found. Finally, as a fun question I like to ask guests, what's your favorite flavor of Howling Cow ice cream? I regret to say that I am not able to eat ice cream. So my favorite flavor would have to be non-dairy. Uh, as far as I know, they don't make one. Sad but true. Thank you for coming on. It's been great having you. I enjoyed it. This week's episode of Dialogue with Technician was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tim Willard. We make Dialogue with Technician in WKNC Recording Studios and Witherspoon Student Center. If you have any questions, criticisms, or praises, let us know by emailing Jonathan Carter, our editor-in-chief, at technician-editor at ncsu.edu. And as always, we'll see you next week.